So I read a story about a wealthy lady who had a large estate and lots of investments. She also had three or four kids, but she decided to leave everything in inheritance to a college. When she passed away, her children had found out about the details of their mother's will, and expectedly so, they were pretty upset about not receiving anything from her will. They contested the will and tried to change the outcome of what would happen to their mother's assets, but they could do nothing. The will was ratified and legal, and there was nothing that the kids could do to change their mother's wishes. They couldn't add to it. They couldn't take it away, uh, take away from it, and they couldn't change the will in any way. The ordeal was sealed. In our passage today, Paul is trying to say that the promises of God are not only as unchangeable as a man-made covenant, but even more so. If man-made ratified contracts are unchangeable, then how much more so are the ones from God? But before we dig any deeper into this, I think we need to understand a bit more about this contract that our, pa- our passage is referring to, this promise of God. We need to understand what is the promise that God has made. And truthfully, it's a big deal. It is a central theme of the Bible. The first pages of the Bible talk about this promise. The last pages of the Bible talk about this promise. And the pages in the middle, they dance all around this promise, telling the story of the promise of God coming to fruition, the promise of the Messiah. So zoom out with me. We have, we have to start thinking big picture here. Let's go back to Genesis in the beginning, and we're going to begin there in Genesis 3. So in the beginning, God made the Garden of Eden, and he placed man there. God himself dwelt there with man in a unity of heaven and earth. And as you know, the serpent came into the story and tempted Adam and Eve, which brought sin into our world. Well, God did not just leave the story there. He promised to do something. As God addresses Adam and Eve after they sinned, he promises that the serpent will be dealt with. So in Genesis 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians and Bible nerds refer to this passage right here, this uh, verse that I read, they call it the Proto-Evangelion. That compound word just means first, proto, good news, Evangelion, or however you're supposed to say that. Uh, This passage is the first place that God promises that sin would be dealt with. What is terrific is that God didn't wait. As soon as sin entered, God said, this will be dealt with. So if you continue to read Genesis as the piece of literature that it is and the story that it is, you would see that Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. So naturally, you would think back to this promise of an offspring that would deal with sin and the serpent. Okay, which one is it going to be, Cain or Abel? Who's going to be this promised offspring? Well, we read that Cain kills Abel, so we cl- it's quickly clear it's neither one of them. 
As you continue to read through Genesis, you see sin growing in the people. You see 10 generations of people coming between Adam and the flood of Noah. And you see more murder and you see more corruption. And in Genesis 6, verse 5 and 7, 5 through 7, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Whoa, things went downhill really fast in only 10 generations. And whatever happened to God's promise of the offspring who would do something about this sin issue? Was God wrong or was he just unsuccessful? So we continue reading with anxiousness, wondering what will God do? Will he indeed wipe all of humanity away? Will he fulfill his promise from the Garden of Eden? As I said, we see at least 10 generations go by, maybe more. And if you do some simple math, then there could be easily millions of people already on the planet at this point. And God chooses one family to save and carry on the lineage of mankind, Noah and his family. So you might think, is this where God fulfills his promise? So then the flood happens. The earth's population is reset to eight people. And we wait to see if God has finally dealt with sin. Is Noah or one of his sons the promised offspring? But we are to be disappointed as immediately after the flood, we read about Noah getting drunk, having conflict with one of his sons and cursing that son. <sighs> Unfortunately, sin is still here. The curse is still here. And the promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent has not come. It may be tempting to begin to think perhaps God has forgotten about his promise. Or maybe perhaps God is unable to fix this situation like he wanted to. Well, after the flood, we see 10 more generations. And the Bible lists all the generations that lead to Abraham. So we are possibly back up to millions of people born and alive at this point and no mention of the promised offspring. We read about the Tower of Babel which the people built. And in Genesis 11, verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So Bible scholars tell us that this is possibly a story of the people worshiping false gods, but not genuinely as if they were doing it in ignorance. Their motive is clear. Worshiping false gods was for their own power, their own prestige, and their own plan. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. Which in my ear sounds very rep reminiscent of the pride of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve listened to the snake as he tempted, you can know good and evil. You can be like God. So the reader of Genesis at this point begins to see the same pattern emerge that we saw before. Sin is growing again. The people have not changed. If left alone, the people will end up right where they were before the flood, only thinking evil all of the time. But then here, in the next chapter, the story 
changes. The story zooms in on, again, one family, the family of Abraham. At the beginning of Abraham's story, uh, he's called Abram at this point. Uh, we have given we are given two short paragraphs of biography biography for him. Um, we're not given much. The Bible tells us he is the son of Terah, that he has married a barren woman named Sarai, and that he was moving to the land of Canaan with his family. That's pretty much all we are told at this point. Once we have this silhouette of Abraham, the story jumps right to the point. It jumps right to God, giving him the first account of his promise. To Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what is so cool is that the reader of Genesis at this point has just finished reading a list of all the descendants of Noah. They just finished reading about their continued sinfulness. So God is saying, all these people you just read about, I will bless all of them through you. You saw their pattern of sin, but don't worry, I've got it. This is the promise Paul is talking about in our Galatians passage today. But this is not the only place that the story (laughs) gives it to Abraham. (laughs) Throughout the story of Abraham, we see God state this promise over and over. Genesis 18, 18 says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 22, 17 through 18. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and I will give you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So one thing I hope you've noticed is how often God is talking about Abraham's offspring in these passages. And I've only touched on a few. God talks about the offspring of Abraham almost 40 times in Genesis. A rule of interpreting scripture is the rule of first occurrences. With this rule, when there is a thematic repetitive keyword, you go back to the first time it was used for a clue to the interpretation of the rest. And when we do that here, we are led all the way back to the Proto-Evangelion, the place we started in Genesis chapter 3. We are led back to God's curse on the snake and the promised offspring of Eve, who would conquer the serpent and set things right with humanity and sin and God. Then when we come back and we review 
all of the times that God uses the word offspring in Genesis, which like I said, is almost 40 times, we see a strong theme of hope and provision and promise and blessing. God repeats this promise for his offspring several times to Abraham. He repeats it to his son Isaac. He repeats it to Jacob, and he does it multiple times. So the reader of Genesis does not have to worry. God has not forgotten his promise made in the Garden of Eden. Also, let me show you this. Let's fast forward a bit in the Bible narrative to King David, the first king of Abraham's descendants. And this is about 600 years after Abraham. We see God still has not forgotten this promise. The promised offspring, the promised offspring theme is still visible. So if we look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, it says, God speaking to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then again in Psalm 89 verses three and four, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Here we see a little more of what this promised offspring will be. He will be a king forever. He will be a king for all generations, connecting to the promise that he would be a blessing for all nations. He will build a house for the name of God, which is just a way of saying that he will provide access to God. This is a thick and rich theme throughout the Old Testament. The promised offspring who God will use to bless all nations, all families, all people who will establish the kingdom of God, do away with sin ultimately, and rule forever. This theme has been recognized and understood for the entire history of the scriptures. And it doesn't stop there. I love how the first verse of the New Testament recognizes this theme and it reaches out and grabs it as the promise of God that it is. The first verse of the New Testament immediately ties itself to Christ as the fulfiller of this promised offspring theme. Look with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In this statement, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the promised offspring of King David. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, and by extension, the promised offspring of the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis chapter 3. He is the offspring who has crushed the head of the serpent. I think this is amazing. To look through these scriptures written over the course of thousands and thousands of years and see the original promise made, to see God not forget about this promise, even when things looked dire. To see Jesus come and prove himself to be the promised offspring who shall bless all nations by providing a solution to the sin problem that wrecked the Garden of Eden and continues to wreak havoc throughout the Bible story up to today. But we do not have to stay in this wreckage. The solution that God has provided for our sin, he provided through a 
promise. The solution that God promised to Abraham only had to be believed through faith. Back to Genesis 5, 15, 5 and 6. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. No, no, it is 6. I was, I was right. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham did not have to work for it. He only had to have faith. God did not say, Abraham, if you do X, Y, Z, then I will do these things. No, God simply said, I will do this. I promise. And Abraham believed him. If we kept reading further into the scriptures, we would not see the law of Moses for another four centuries after this point where righteousness is attributed to Abraham. We have to read 50 more chapters before we get to the law. The law does not affect the promise given to Abraham. And that is Paul's point in Galatians. So turn with me back to Galatians 3, 15 through 18. And let's look through there. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Think back to my story about the woman and her inheritance and her will. Once she died, it was unchangeable. Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul is is wording things strangely here. Um, He is not saying that the word offspring is only supposed to mean to a single person. I mean, later in the book of Galatians, Paul uses the word offspring himself to refer to multiple people. So Paul is trying to say that it is okay to see the promise to Abraham as multi-layered. The offspring of the promise of God refers to Abraham's literal children, to the spiritual children of Abraham, or those who place their faith in God's promise, Jesus, as well as referring to Christ himself. The other writers of the New Testament also interpreted the promises of Abraham this way. So did Jesus himself. So what I am saying is, sometimes Paul is just hard to understand. He words things strangely, and this is one of those times. Simply put, Paul is saying it is appropriate to see Christ in these promises. All right, let's keep rolling. Verse 18. Uh, Verse 17. This is what I mean, Paul getting to this point. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If the ethical, legal, and moral thing to do with a man-made covenant is to keep the details stated in the covenant, how much more will God keep the covenantal promise he made centuries before the law was in place? God will not go back on his covenant he had made. He will not add requirements to it or change his mind. That is Paul's point in our Galatians passage today. And it's fantastic news. 
The promised offspring, the Messiah, was promised since the Garden of Eden. And through the centuries afterward, God reminded his people, don't worry, he's coming. Not only is he coming, but all nations will be blessed and he will rule forever. This will not be a band-aid fix. And then finally, he did come. He is Jesus. And if God will keep this promise of bringing the promised offspring, he will keep all aspects of this promise, specifically that we can experience the blessings of this promised Messiah without amends and annulments, without the law. We can receive forgiveness and salvation without having to earn it through works of righteousness. It is a gift and promise. God's promise is rock solid. It's binding. There's no changing it. The law doesn't change it or add to it. And if you're asking, well, then what is the point of the law? Well, that's for next week's sermon. So you'll have to come back for that. If this is not news for you, if you already know this, then terrific. I hope that you are further solidified in your trust in God's promise. Be further solidified in your trust that Christ is the promised offspring and the solution for your sin. Be further convinced that God does not demand you to create your own righteousness. But friends, if this is news to you, if you have always believed that God's acceptance and salvation comes through being a good enough person and doing the right things to make God happy, let that idea go. Reject it outright. Let me say that again. If you believe that God's acceptance and salvation comes through being a good enough person and doing the right things to make God happy, let that idea go because it's wrong. As Tommy said in his sermon last week, you cannot do more than Christ. I love Tommy's analogy of trying to be good enough for God is like a person hanging over a cliff by a chain. If one link breaks, you are done. And if you're trying to earn your righteousness with God, one breach in your own goodness breaks that chain and you're done. The Bible tells us that if we fail in one point of the law, we fail in it all. The standard of God is perfection. Jesus Christ is the only one who could keep the whole law and prove he was perfect and sinless, able to give his life on the cross as a ransom for the sins of the world for all nations, for every family, to be a blessing for those nations. Now, you just have to choose. Will you believe God's covenant promise and trust in his provision for your sin and allow him to credit your faith as righteousness like he did for Abraham? Let's reflect on this question together. Do I believe God's salvation is 100% free as promised? Or do I believe my salvation and approval with God depends on my goodness? Friends, place your faith in Jesus as the provision for your sin. Receive forgiveness and start to experience new life in Christ today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this promise that you gave clear in Genesis when 
sin first came on the scene. You promised an offspring that would do away with it. You promised an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent and that this would be an everlasting solution. And we are so thankful to see Jesus perfectly live up to your standard. We are thankful that he died on the cross for our sin so that we could inherit the same promises of Abraham so that we could have forgiveness, relationship with you. And we are thankful that this does not depend on the law, that we do not have to earn this by our own actions. Remind uh, us of this daily. Remind us when we get hung up with not being good enough, with our own insufficiencies. Help us to place our hope and faith on Jesus. We praise your name. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your covenant. Thank you for, for Jesus. Amen.